Chapter Four of Smith, Journalist by P. G. Wodehouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Psuke Berea. Chapter Four, Bat Jarvis. Billy Windsor lived in a single room on East Fourteenth Street. Space in New York is valuable, and the average bachelor's apartments consist of one room with a bathroom opening off of it. During the daytime, this room loses all traces of being used for sleeping purposes at night. Billy Windsor's room was very much like a public school study. Along one wall ran a settee. At night, this became a bed, but in the daytime, it was a settee and nothing but a settee. There was no space for a great deal of furniture. There was one rocking chair, two ordinary chairs, a table, a bookstand, a typewriter. Nobody uses pens in New York, and on the walls a mixed collection of photographs, drawings, knives, and skins, relics of their owner's prairie days. Over the door was the head of a young bear. Billy's first act on arriving in the sanctum was to release the cat, which, having moved restlessly about for some moments, finally came to the conclusion that there was no means of getting out and settled itself on a corner of the settee. Smith, sinking gracefully down beside it, stretched out his legs and lit a cigarette. Mike took one of the ordinary chairs, and Billy Windsor, planting himself in the rocker, began to rock rhythmically to and fro, a performance which he kept up untiringly all the time. A peaceful scene, observed Smith. Three great minds, keen, alert, restless during business hours, relax. All is calm and pleasant chit-chat. You have snug quarters up here, Comrade Windsor. I hold that there is nothing like one's own roof tree. It is a great treat to one who, like myself, is located in one of these vast caravanserie, to be exact the aster, to pass a few moments in the quiet privacy of an apartment such as this. It's beastly expensive at the aster, said Mike. The place has that drawback also. Anon, Comrade Jackson, I think we will hunt around for some such cubbyhole as this, built for two. Our nervous systems must be conserved." "'On Fourth Avenue,' said Billy Windsor, "'you can get quite good flats very cheap. "'Furnished, too. "'You should move there. "'It's not much of a neighborhood. "'I don't know if you mind that.' "'Far from it, Comrade Windsor. "'It is my aim to see New York in all its phases. "'If a certain amount of harmless revelry "'can be whacked out of Fourth Avenue, "'we must dash there with all the vim "'of highly trained smell-dogs. "'Are you with me, Comrade Jackson?' "'All right,' said Mike. "'And now, Comrade Windsor,' "'It would be a pleasure to me to peruse that little journal of which you spoke. "'I have had so few opportunities of getting into touch with the literature of this great country.' "'Billy Windsor stretched out an arm and pulled a bundle of papers from the bookstand. "'He tossed them onto the settee by Smith's side. "'There you are,' he said, "'if you really feel like it. "'Don't say I didn't warn you. "'If you've got the nerve, read on.' "'Smith had picked up one of the papers when there came a shuffling of feet in the passage outside.' followed by a knock upon the door. The next moment there appeared in the doorway a short, stout young man. There was an indescribable air of toughness about him, partly due to the fact that he wore his hair in a well-oiled fringe almost down to his eyebrows, which gave him the appearance of having no forehead at all. His eyes were small and set close together. His mouth was wide, his jaw prominent. Not, in short, the sort of man you would have picked out on sight as a model citizen." His acquaintance was marked by a curious sibilant sound, which on acquaintance proved to be a whistled tune. During the interview which followed, except when he was speaking, the visitor whistled softly, 
and unceasingly. "'Mr. Windsor,' he said to the company at large. Smith waved a hand toward the rocking chair. "'That,' he said, "'is Comrade Windsor. "'To your right is Comrade Jackson, England's favorite son. "'I am Smith.' The visitor blinked furtively and whistled another tune. As he looked round the room, his eye fell on the cat. His face lit up. "'Say,' he said, stepping forward and touching the cat's collar, "'mine, mister.' "'Are you Bat Jarvis?' asked Windsor with interest. "'Sure,' said the visitor, not without a touch of complacency, as of a monarch abandoning his incognito. For Mr. Jarvis was a celebrity. By profession he was a dealer in animals, birds, and snakes. He had a fancier shop in Groom Street in the heart of the Bowery. This was on the ground floor. His living abode was in the upper story of that house, and it was there that he kept the twenty-three cats whose necks were adorned with the leather collars, and whose numbers had so recently been reduced to twenty-two. But it was not the fact that he possessed twenty-three cats with leather collars that made Mr. Jarvis a celebrity. A man may win purely local reputation, if only for eccentricity, by such means, but Mr. Jarvis's reputation was far from being purely local. Broadway knew him, and the Tenderloin. Tammany Hall knew him. Long Island City knew him. In the underworld of New York his name was a byword, for Bat Jarvis was the leader of the famous Groom Street Gang, the most noted of all New York's collections of Apaches. More, he was the founder and originator of it, and curiously enough it had come into being from motives of sheer benevolence. In Groom Street in those days there had been a dance hall named the Shamrock and presided over by one McGinnis, an Irishman and a friend of Bat's. At the Shamrock nightly dances were given, and well attended by the youth of the neighborhood at ten cents a head. All might have been well had it not been for certain other youths of the neighborhood, who did not dance, and so had to seek other means of getting rid of their surplus energy. It was the practice of these light-hearted sportsmen to pay their ten cents for admittance, and once in, to make hay. And this habit, Mr. McGinnis found, was having a marked effect on his earnings." for genuine lovers of the dance fought shy of a place where at any moment Philistines might burst in and break heads and furniture. In this crisis the proprietor had thought of his friend Bat Jarvis. Bat, at that time, had a solid reputation as a man of his hands. It is true that, as his detractors pointed out, he had killed no one, a defect which he had subsequently corrected, but his admirers based his claim to respect on his many meritorious performances with Fiss and with the blackjack, and Mr. McGinnis for one held him in the very highest esteem. To bat accordingly he went and laid his painful case before him. He offered him a handsome salary to be on hand at the nightly dances and check undue revelry by his own robust methods. Bat had accepted the offer. He had gone to Shamrock Hall, and with him— faithful adherents, had gone such stalwarts as Long Otto, Red Logan, Tommy Jefferson, and Pete Brody. Shamrock Hall became a place of joy and order, and, more important still, the nucleus of the Groom Street gang had been formed. The work progressed. Offshoots of the main gang sprang up here and there about the east side. Small thieves, pickpockets, and the like, flocked to Mr. Jarvis as their tribal leader and protector, and he protected them for he, with his followers, were of use to the politicians. The New York gangs, and especially the Groom Street gang, have brought to a fine art the gentle practice of repeating, which, broadly speaking, is the art of voting a number of different times at different polling stations on election days. A man who can vote, say, ten times in a single day for you, 
and who controls a great number of followers who are also prepared, if they like you, to vote ten times in a single day for you, is worth cultivating. So the politicians passed the word to the police, and the police left the Groom Street gang unmolested, and they waxed fat and flourished. Such was Bat Jarvis. "'Pipe de collar,' said Mr. Jarvis, touching the cat's neck. "'Mine, mister.' "'Pugsy said it must be,' said Billy Windsor. "'We found two fellows setting a dog onto it, and so we took it in for safety.' Mr. Jarvis nodded approval. "'There's a basket here, if you want it,' said Billy. "'Nope. Here, Kit.' Mr. Jarvis stooped, and, still whistling softly, lifted the cat. He looked round the company, met Smith's eyeglass, and was transfixed by it for a moment, and finally turned again to Billy Windsor. "'Say,' he said, and paused. "'Obliged,' he added. He shifted the cat onto his left arm, and extended his right hand to Billy. "'Shake,' he said. Billy did so. Mr. Jarvis continued to stand and whistle for a few moments more. "'Say,' he said at length, fixing his roving gaze once more upon Billy. "'Obliged. Fond of a kid, I am.' Smith nodded approvingly. "'And rightly,' he said. "'Rightly, Comrade Jarvis. She is not unworthy of your affection. A most companionable animal, full of the highest spirits. Her knockabout act in the restaurant would have satisfied the most jaded critic. No diner out can afford to be without such a cat. Such a cat spells death to boredom.' Mr. Jarvis eyed him fixedly, as if pondering over his remarks. Then he turned to Billy again. "'Say,' he said, "'any time you're in bad. Glad to be of service. You know the address, Groom Street. Bat Jarvis. Good night.' "'Obliged.' He paused, and whistled a few more bars, then nodded to Smith and Mike, and left the room. They heard him shuffling downstairs. "'A blithe spirit,' said Smith. "'Not garrulous, perhaps, but what of that?' I am a man of few words myself. Comrade Jarvis's massive silences appeal to me. He seems to have taken a fancy to you, Comrade Windsor. Billy Windsor laughed. I don't know that he's just the sort of side partner I go out of my way to choose from what I've heard about him. Still, if one got mixed up with any of that East Side crowd, he would be a mighty useful friend to have. I guess there's no harm done by getting him grateful. Assuredly not, said Smith. We should not despise the humblest. "'And now, Comrade Windsor,' he said, taking up the paper again, "'let me concentrate myself tensely on this very entertaining little journal of yours. "'Comrade Jackson, here is one for you. "'For sound, clear-headed criticism,' he added to Billy, "'Comrade Jackson's name is a byword in our English literary salons. "'His opinion will be of both interest and of profit to you, Comrade Windsor.'" End of Chapter 4 of Smith, Journalist by P. G. Wodehouse